his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Jean Rabinow. She is Membership and Outreach Director with the Connecticut League of Women Voters. Good morning to you. Good morning. Tuesday's primary day in Connecticut, so we thought it would be uh, good to have you in and talk about what people need to know if they plan to vote on Tuesday. All right. The first and most important thing is you must be a registered Republican or a registered Democrat in order to vote on Tuesday. And this does not mean that you have always voted Republican or always voted Democrat. It means that you have to be registered on the record with either of those parties. Those are the only two parties holding primaries, and you've got to be a member. Now, the ship has sailed to register online Yes, that is correct. However, it is still possible for the listeners this morning to go into their town hall or city hall and go to their registrar of voters up to noon on Monday and register to vote. And also, by the way, that would include changing their registration from unaffiliated to Democrat or Republican. You cannot at this point effectively change your registration from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat because there's a three-month look-back period for that. Now, we have primaries for a number of offices, statewide offices, including governor. What's at stake in this primary? And it's important to get the word out because, you know, it's the middle of summer. A lot of people are on vacation voting, not on top of mind. I'm afraid that that's true. I've got to say that too many people focus on the top of the ticket and who gets nominated on Tuesday to run for governor is very important. But in those areas where there are races for the legislative branch, quite frankly, that's equally important. It's not the governor who controls the state pension fund. It's not the governor who controls the money that goes into transportation. These are legislative functions. And if you have a chance to take a look at who your party is putting up for those offices, quite frankly, that's just as important. Local politics, the legislative races and the, the House and Senate, and I know it's not a local election year, but for a selectman, board of selectmen, city council, that's really where the rubber meets the road and you can often make the most difference in government. That is absolutely true. It's I find it very odd that people will only vote in some cases for the top of the ticket. Uh, the way I know this is that I am one of Trumbull, Connecticut's deputy registrars, and so when we have a recount, I have from time to time been involved in that. And at that point, you see the ballots. Um, normally, of course, the ballots are fed into the machine and nobody looks at them at all. But on a recount, 
they are actually every single ballot is reviewed by groups of Republicans and Democrats and in some cases third party members um, to make sure that the ballots that we're refeeding into the machine are readable and the other ones are hand counted. And you see hosts of ballots where the top race or the top three races are marked and then there's just blanks. That strikes me as being almost self-defeating. So if you're going to the polls on Tuesday or if you want to register in person tomorrow, Monday, what do you need to bring with you? All right. Technically speaking, when you register, you don't have to bring anything with you at all. You do have to be willing to swear under penalties of perjury that what you're putting down on the registration form is not a lie. However, there are a set of requirements for what you have to bring to the polls. Um, And if this, I guess, is a federal year, so we're under the federal guidelines, and let me pull those. There is a Republican primary for U.S. Senate, and it's the midterm elections, so there are Republican and Democratic primaries for Congress in parts of the state. There certainly is in the 5th Congressional mm-hmm. District, and some of your listeners are in there. Absolutely. Um, what they're asking for on identification at the polling place, um, quite frankly, is a current and valid photo identification, and it's got to show your name and current address. Now, that usually is a driver's license, but it can be a non-driver photo ID. It can be um, a military ID. It can be a passport. Uh, There are a number of documents that meet that standard. Alternatively, they say a copy of a current utility bill, bank statement, paycheck, or a government document that shows your name and your current address. What we're trying there... and. And this does make sense for people who just simply don't have photo ID, is we assume that if you're getting those documents mailed to your home address, that's reasonable proof that at least the person with that name or the name you're claiming is at that address at this time, which is what you need to be able to vote in a particular polling place. One thing you cannot do for the primaries is register on the same day and vote. That is correct. Election day registration will not be available until November. Okay, but it it is relatively new in Connecticut, and it's something you can do on election day, again, not for the primary. Yes, that is correct. Um, One of the things that is a little bit worrisome about election day registration is that the business of checking to make sure that the voter is not registered in two places is done over the internet. And there are passwords and only certain people can get on. But if you're worried about some hacker getting into the system and making it difficult for people to register on election day, that frankly is a point where I'd worry a little bit about weaknesses. The internet is a sieve. Going back to primary day on Tuesday, if voters still want to learn more about the candidates, What resources would you recommend? Ouch. Before the primary, there are not a lot of what the league calls voters' guides with back-to-back information about candidates answering the same questions. Almost every candidate who's on the primary ballot will have either a website or a Facebook page or both. I strongly recommend that if you're interested in the candidate, you go onto those those websites and Facebook pages, and take a look. The trouble with that is that the candidates tend to, to present information 
on the issues that they care about. Those may not be the issues that you care about. So sometimes there is going to be an information void. They might punt on the tough issues, too, sometimes. I'm not so sure it's the tough issues, but it's the issues that the candidates feel will present them in a best light that they tend to put on their pages. The questions that the league tends to be interested in, like, is there going to be adequate funding for the transportation program? And what do you think about maintaining the funding sources for the citizens' election program? Or any number of things which we might consider very crucial to the way the state runs, but which a lot of people don't, the candidates, some of the candidates don't even know about them. They certainly are not going to put something on their website unless they feel that it's going to make the voters more comfortable with them. So there will be gaps in areas that people care about. Following primary day, we should look for more voter guides as the field kind of gets whittled down for the general election. Absolutely. Um, Many of the advocacy organizations do their own voters' guides. The league um, and many of our local chapters, local leagues, will do voters' guides where we will ask questions which we feel the voters in our particular districts are interested in. In many cases, we work with the local newspapers um, and we work with the editors to come up with a set of questions that they feel are pertinent. And we ask the same question or questions to every single candidate for any given race, and we put their answers down back to back to back. This is kind of a basic question, but how is the League of Women Voters organized in Connecticut? There's a statewide organization, and then there are local chapters. That is correct. Each chapter um, can be simply one town, or it can be a group of towns. Uh, My league is the League of Women Voters of the Bridgeport area. It's Bridgeport, Stratford, Trumbull, Shelton, and Monroe. Um, there are the Litchfield County League covers about a quarter of the state. The Northeast League is humongous. The Southeast League is large. These are towns um, that have come together to share manage league management, um, but still have the ability to do debates and voters' guides in particular towns. Now, the league is nonpartisan. It's grassroots, doesn't endorse candidates. Never. But you do have positions on certain issues. Yes, we do. Many of the issues are ones you would expect us to have positions on. Citizens' election program for adequate campaign funding, um, ballot access, um, protecting against voter fraud, um, all of those sort of nitty-gritty how-the-government-runs kinds of issues. Right now we've got a study committee forming to look at redistricting because that's going to be coming up in a couple of years. There are also league positions on other things, and in some cases it's cost us membership. We've taken positions on the transportation structure in the state. We've taken positions in favor of full funding of the educational cost-sharing grant. Uh, We've got active people talking about making sure the bottle bill isn't eviscerated. There's a lot of things that we do which are not considered strictly government issues, but our members feel very strongly about them. Was it a challenge to weigh in on some of those issues? It depends on what you mean by a challenge. In some cases, we have lost membership when we have taken a position that the majority of our members favor. In some cases, we haven't had a membership problem, but it took us 10 years to get water bottles added to the bottle bill for recycling. So do you have a a statewide meeting where these issues are debated? 
Um, no, we do that. What we do is if when we're studying an issue, we come up with a set of propositions or questions, and we put those out to our 26 local leagues. And we say, these are the questions we want your members to answer. And they have the meetings, so they can discuss it in enormous detail locally. And we'll put out other information, websites you can check, books you can read, magazine articles, videos. We'll send out DVDs of, of discussions that we've had. And then after we've given people a reasonable amount of time to debate the issues, we come back and we say, all right, how did your league vote on question one, question two, question three? And depending on how the vote goes, that's how we adopt or do not adopt a position. When we tried to study the state income tax, we could not get agreement. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Jean Rabinow. She is membership and outreach director for the League of Women Voters of Connecticut. One thing that's been noted recently, really since the 2016 election, is the surge in voter registration in Connecticut. And we spoke to the Secretary of the State's office, and she thought there were a number of issues at play. Number one, the the motor voter program, and also simply just the, the state of politics and what's going on in the world. And I'm sure the league has seen that spike as well, but the question is, will the people who signed up to vote, vote on Election Day? Unfortunately, turnout in in some of our recent non-presidential years has been abysmal. There's no other way to describe it. It has just been horrible. Getting people to register turns out to not be a major problem in Connecticut. We have a well-educated population, and they know they should be registered, and they pretty much do come out. In addition to that, you can register online, so it's easy. If you've got a, a ID from the Department of Motor Vehicles, whether driver or non-driver, that's all you have to have to register successfully online. And in addition to that, um, under current state law, every single town in the entire state has to send its registrars of voters to every single high school in the state at least once a year and get those 17 and 18 year olds signed up. So, so registration isn't the problem. Turnout is the problem. And how we get people to actually come to the polls has been one of the great open questions. The league has literally been beating our head against a wall on this one. There are some things we can encourage towns to do. Make sure that their polling place is handicapped accessible and has adequate parking and is on public transportation where that's a factor. Um, But that still doesn't get the people out of their homes and into the polls. Now, for some people, they're never going to go to the polls. There is such a thing in Connecticut as a permanent absentee ballot for the disabled or for the permanently ill, so that there is a way of people being able to vote from their homes if they need to. But the majority of voters are still going to have to go to the polling place or apply for an absentee ballot time after time after time. And quite frankly, if I knew what worked, I would not only be talking to every single league in the state and the Democratic and Republican state central committees, I would be going on the road and telling people in other states how to do it. Does the league have a position on early voting? We are in favor of early voting, but we have not looked at exactly which forms of early voting we think would be the most successful. One of the things the state could do is they could open up 
the absentee ballot so that you don't have to have one of the seven certified excuses. Um, they call it no excuse absentee voting, but really it's any excuse absentee voting. The trouble with that is twofold. One is absentee ballots aren't private. Your spouse and your kids may find out how you voted. And in some cases, that's not necessarily what you want. The other thing is, if you walk into the polls, and this, by the way, is as true on Tuesday as it will be in November. If you make a mistake marking your ballot, you say, oh, heavens, I didn't want to vote for him. I wanted to vote for him. All you do is you pick up the ballot, you go back to the ballot clerk, and you say, excuse me, I'd like a new ballot, or I voted wrong. And the ballot clerk draws a line through the ballot so it cannot be read by the machine, puts it in a spoiled ballot folder, and gives you a new ballot so you have as many chances as it takes to get the vote the way you want it. Absentee ballots, you get one ballot. If you don't mark that correctly, you're in trouble. The other thing is, if you are in the polling place, they will give you marking pens that the machine definitely can read. If you are marking your absentee ballot at home, please, please, please remember, do not use blue ink, do not use red ink, and do not use pencil because you may think you've marked your ballot, but the machine cannot count it. So you have to use black ink. Black ink, preferably felt-tip pen. you got to fill in those ovals. Circling the ovals doesn't work. Marking X's through the ovals may not work. You really, you really only get the one chance with absentee ballots. There's been a lot of talk in the news recently about continued efforts by foreign interests to meddle in U.S. elections. What steps are, are taken here in Connecticut to help make sure elections are clean? All right. It starts with many towns still maintain complete paper records of every registered voter in that town so that if, heaven forbid, the system crashes, there's still a way of checking, if necessary, by going to the file cabinet, looking it up and phoning someone. In addition, the voting tabulator machines are never hooked up to the Internet. They simply Stand alone. They have one plug that goes through a battery backup to an electrical socket, and that's it. The cards that tell the machines how to count those paper ballots are programmed by, I believe it's Yukon, and they are not then emailed to anybody. They are couriered to each town. Each card and each tabulator are checked two or three weeks before the election to make sure that they're reading the ballots correctly. And the way that's done is some poor registrar of voters in every town has to mark what's known as a test deck using the current ballots and feeding them through the machines one by one as we do each card, each tabulator card in the machine. And when the machine checks out and you can prove that it's read the ballots correctly, that card is locked into the machine and sealed. And it stays sealed right through the recount. There is very little way of messing with the vote. Having said that, there is the paper ballot. If worst comes to worst and there is a real question... Those ballots are stored under lock and key in every single town and city in the state, and they can, if necessary, be accessed 
by groups of Republicans, Democrats, and independents, and they can be looked at ballot by ballot if necessary. Now, ensuring the vote count is accurate is one thing, but on the other side, before people vote, there's also the concern about disinformation being out there and, and helping to to influence people with information that is not correct. That's a, a trickier fight to, that to battle, is, isn't it? That has been a problem since this country was founded, and for all I know, probably before. Lies get put out there in public. The state league office has just written a little pamphlet, a little trifold that we will send out to anybody called, how do I choose a candidate in Connecticut? Um, And we ask you to look at certain things. If you have a candidate who is making promises can he fund the, the programs he's promising to put into action? Alternatively, if he's promising to cut taxes, what programs is he going to cut to make that tax thing work? Is the candidate doing things which other candidates are saying are clearly untrue? If you don't trust mainstream media, are there other ways that you have of checking? Can you go online? Can you Google a topic and say, what is the best guess as to? And there are sources out there which are not curated sources in the same sense that, for instance, even this news program is. Um, there's Wikipedia. There's, um, there's Snopes. There are places you can go on the web um, or they, where you can use a mobile app where you can look at what a bunch of other people have found to be the facts. That having been said, at some point, you have to ask yourself, is what I'm hearing too good to be true? I don't know what else we can do except encourage people to to think about the candidates in a, frankly, somewhat skeptical way and hope for the best. In our last couple of minutes, uh, talk a little about some of the other programs that the League of Women Voters is involved in. I'm thinking tours of the Capitol, for example. That is correct. As far as I know, Connecticut is the only state where the Capitol tours are done by the League of Women Voters. And we're very proud of those men and women. Um, Some of them are paid, but many of them are League volunteers. And they've been our face at the Capitol for longer than I've been a member of the League. We have um, debates that we do on the local and state level. Um, there are publications that we put out for voter service. We lobby in Hartford for the, for the programs that we believe in. Um, we will teach. Um, many of our leagues, especially in the larger cities, have done um, tenant elections in public housing projects. We have helped, in some cases, write those rules. There's pretty much, if there is something to do with making government work better, we try to be there to do it. And if you've never taken a tour at the Capitol, do it. Do it. Do it. Absolutely. The tours are wonderful. I took my first tour when my son was in elementary school. They There isn't very much that goes on there that somebody can't help you with. Our league people study and they know their stuff and the tours are wonderful. And quite frankly, the state Capitol is worth seeing. 
And one more time in our final minute, remind us again, it's not too late to register for Tuesday's primary, is it? As long as you're willing to do it in person, it is not too late, but Monday at noon is the cutoff. And again, please remember, when you go in to vote, you have to be registered with a party. And if you're registered with one party and want to vote in the other party's primary, too late. I'm afraid that that is true. She is Jean Rabinow, Membership and Outreach Director for the Connecticut League of Women Voters. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.